Let me start by saying I pondered a while on addressing the topic of social injustice, racism, and inequality on this podcast. It wasn't until I realized that what I do is for the culture, so it's my responsibility to use my voice as a tool to reach people who follow my platform. And it's kind of like a thing that I always say, each one teach one until you reach one. So let me take a stab at this. So everybody just take a ride with me for a little bit. We're going to experiment. <laughs> 2020 has been one of the craziest years in my lifetime. I believe we were all claiming 2020 is a year of perfect vision, a time for changing things from where we are to from where we are now to something bigger and better. And then coronavirus struck. So let's get right to it. Our top story, the new developments in the coronavirus. Here's the latest. There are at least 433 cases reported in 32 states. That cruise ship off the coast of California with at least 21 infected passengers and crew is finally coming to shore. But now there are questions about where to send all of those people. Meanwhile, over in Italy, the government is resorting to a drastic measure. They're putting a quarter of the population on lockdown. For me, I was in Davenport, Iowa. I was working with my American Picker family, pursuing my dreams, working on reality television. I had just returned to my normal life and job back at Kentucky when I learned that I would be sent home on administrative leave until COVID-19 was under control. Most of us were assuming maybe like a week or two, man, but before any of us knew it, we were all under quarantine. As the entire world was on lockdown, under quarantine. People took advantage of spending more time with family, rekindling old friendships and relationships, relaxing, creating all sorts of cool and innovative things to focus and attempt to stay sane. Hell, me and Beezy started a television network with multiple shows, and this podcast is actually one of them. Now let's fast forward a little bit. On March 13th, Brianna Taylor, a 26-year-old African-American woman, former EMT, and at the time, she was working in healthcare as a person that we held in high regards because she was an essential worker providing assistance during the world pandemic. Late night on the 13th, Brianna will be fatally shot in her apartment when three Louisville police officers were investigating two people suspected of selling drugs. Upon entering, the officers were met with gunfire and one officer was struck in the leg as Brianna's boyfriend thought intruders had broken into their apartment. Little did he know, it would be three officers whom let off rounds of bullets that would claim Brianna's life. Federal and state investigators to look into a deadly police shooting two months after it happened. Louisville police shot and killed 26-year-old Brianna Taylor in her apartment during what her family calls a botched drug raid. The issue at hand was that a few weeks had passed and it seemed as if Brianna's case would start to fade away. With COVID-19 spreading rapidly around many U.S. cities, it brought on layoffs, closures, and limitations, which would be one factor in slowing down the investigation. An investigation of a woman killed by the police who was not on a no-knock warrant. 
The 26-year-old was shot and killed March 13th when Louisville police raided her home. The search warrant states that authorities thought this man, Jamarcus Glover, was using Taylor's apartment for his mailing address and to stash drugs and money. Officers later discovered that Glover had been arrested shortly before the raid. Ben Crump represents Taylor's family. This was a completely unnecessary and justifiable killing of an innocent woman. Uh, these police officers botched the execution of a search warrant. Hold on, let me put a little bit of icing on the cake. The suspects they were looking for had already been taken into custody earlier that day. Still, to this day, not one officer has been arrested or charged with any crime. Now, let's take it down south to Brunswick, Georgia, where 25-year-old Ahmad Aubrey was hunted down and killed while out for a jog. Former police officer Gregory McMichael and his son Travis pursued Ahmad in a pickup truck and stopped him because they claimed he resembled a suspect who had committed burglaries in that area. Back here now to that other major story we are following tonight. Investigators looking closely at surveillance video appearing to show the final moments of Ahmad Arbery just before he was shot and killed by a father and son who said they were trying to make a citizen's arrest. Needless to say, Gregory and Travis were wrong. The only evidence they had was the color of his skin, which was black. Travis pulled the trigger, taking Ahmad's life. And guess what? Neither men were arrested for committing the crime that took a young man's life at that time. The black male running down the street. When detectives arrived at the scene at 1.45 p.m., Arbery was dead. The McMichaels told police they thought Arbery was this man. Caught on these surveillance images from the construction site given to ABC News by a local lawyer. It would be two long months later when the Georgia Bureau of Investigation would announce that Gregory and Travis would be taken into custody. Prosecutors later recused themselves from the case. Now, investigators say they're aware of this surveillance video and reviewed it before making any arrests, which happened two days after they took the case and 74 days after the shooting. Now, tonight we're told that neither of the suspects, the McMichaels, has hired counsel. Before I continue, Let's not forget to mention Mr. William Roddy Bryan, another accomplice in helping pursue Ahmad. After the McMichaels were arrested and charged, William Bryan was also brought in and arrested in connection with Ahmad's death. Don't forget the graphic video of this incident was also filmed and posted by a radio station, which was later taken down. Now, you know, this graphic video would later go viral causing the uproar across America. Hold up, I'm not finished yet. I'm gonna add a little more gas to this thing that's already in flames. I have one more story to tell you. This one's about George Floyd. So right as the sun starts shining, the weather began to feel great, and the world slowly started to open back up. We'd all witness another person of color kill, or shall I say murdered, at the hands of a police officer. Let's rewind it back for a second so I can give you a little bit of context. George Floyd, a Houston native that moved to Minneapolis, Minnesota, was arrested on suspicion of passing a counterfeit $20 bill at his store nearby. 
once pulled over, video footage shows George Floyd in cuffs on the side of the street. George was later placed in the police cruiser where the video would later show some sort of struggle in the back seat. This is when we later see George Floyd handcuffed face down on the ground with a police officer's knee on his neck. In this nine minute video, you hear George plead to the officers that he couldn't breathe. He would also cry out for his mother. Something every mother across the world could feel. Let me say that one more time. He would also cry out for his mother. Something that every mother across the world could feel. Such disturbing video. George Floyd handcuffed, lying on his stomach, with a police officer's knee on his neck for nearly nine minutes as he begs for breath. I can't breathe. Officer Shaver never let up. He actually put his hands in his pockets and later repositioned himself on his neck. George Floyd would later die. Some reports stated in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, but we can clearly see George Floyd lay motionless on the ground with no pulse. Just filed today say police are trained that this kind of restraint, putting a knee on a subject who's lying face down, is inherently dangerous. The world would also witness two other officers on George's back. How crazy is that? One man handcuffed, three officers on his back, and one watching guard. Both autopsies performed determined that George's death was a homicide. And once again, no immediate arrest for what everyone could clearly see was a murder. Before we knew it, the city of Minneapolis was filled with protesters fighting for George. This would later spark outrage across America with protests in various cities all over to other countries. This brings us to where we are now. America is on fire. But I think after what we've seen in 2020, with social injustice, that's going to be the game changer. The city continues to protest what they argue to be an unfair, trigger-happy police force and a war zone reaction to civilian protests. Unfortunately, this is far from the first time we've heard this story in America. I'm not here to harp on the injustices that have been going on since before my time. I'm here to say that the world we're living in today has not changed that much. I mean, it's 2020 and we still have police killing unarmed black men, a higher incarceration rate for blacks and a disdain for the black race. I'm here to determine what we can do as a people. See, we all come from different walks of life, but nine times out of 10, we've experienced similar circumstances when it came to being a black man or a black woman in America. A day before game one of the NBA Finals, police are investigating a spray-painted racial slur on the front gate of a Los Angeles home LeBron James owns. Moments ago, James weighing in. It's like it doesn't, no matter how much money you have, um, no matter how famous you are, no matter how many people admire you, um, you know, being, being black in America is, is tough. And, uh, and we got a long way to go. Due to the fact that my father was in the United States Army, I was born in Fort Benning, Georgia, to be exact. I call it being born into a melting pot because in my neighborhood, on my bus, at my school, in my classroom, and everywhere around me were kids from different ethnic backgrounds. I'm not gonna sit up here and say my best friend is this or that or another. My day one is Clint Jenkins, and that's a black man from Gainesville, Florida. 
anyways, this is not so much the same story from my mother and father who were both born in Monroeville, Alabama. That's right, I said Monroeville, Alabama. Home to the infamous story, To Kill a Mockingbird, a book we all read in high school. This time, will you please catch it with your left hand? I can't, sir. Why can't you? I can't use my left hand at all. I got it caught in a cotton gin when I was 12 years old. All my muscles were toe loose. Is this the man who raped you? Well, certainly is. Testified that he choked you and he beat you. You didn't say that he sneaked up behind you and knocked you out cold, but that you turned around and there he was. Do you want to tell us what really happened? I got something to say. And then I ain't gonna say no more. He took advantage of me. And if you find fancy gentlemen ain't gonna do nothing about it, then you're just a bunch of lousy, yellow, stinking cowards. The, the whole bunch of you and your fancy ass don't come to nothing. Your mammon and your Miss May Ellen, it don't come to nothing, Mr. Finch. And to where the new movie, Just Mercy, took place. If you know anything about either of the two, you know it's deeply rooted in social injustices and racism. The first time I visited death row, I wasn't expecting to meet somebody the same age as me. From a neighborhood just like ours. Could have been me, mama. But what you're doing is gonna make a lot of people upset. You always taught me to fight for the people who need the help most. Your life is still meaningful, and I'm gonna do everything possible to keep them from taking it. You don't know what you're into down here in Alabama when you're guilty from the moment you're born. God, Mr. McMillan, we done here. Me, I can remember when 60 Minutes came into town, just like on the movie, Just Mercy. I mean, I saw it all over television, and I actually rolled past that building. Man, it was crazy during those times. For my pops, he had a couple options. Stick around and work for the city, take a gig with Vanity Fair, or join the military. My mother was born to two black farmers. My grandparents both tilled the land, planted their crops, and picked in fields, and later on sold their crops to make ends meet. Oh boy, was that a big ordeal that was filled with issues. But that's a totally different story. So let me move on. Growing up as a military brat, I was afforded the opportunity to travel overseas and experience life abroad. That gave me an insight on other cultures. But living overseas on a military base with other Americans, we naturally became accustomed to American traditions and ways of life. 
for many of us military brats, as long as they spoke American, lived on base, it didn't matter what color they wore. They were from the States. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some cases that were different. Not everyone was accepting, but that was a world we live in. I tell people all the time, I'm glad my father joined the army because I now have friends from various races and various cities throughout the United States. Going through those middle school and high school stages, I began to smell myself with led to relationships. Unlike my cousins in Alabama, I was able to date females from black, white, Puerto Rican, Asian, and so on. Seeing people in interracial relationships was no longer taboo at the time, but dating outside your race always came with caution, which leads me into biracial parents and children. At one point in time in the U.S., dating outside your race could lead to death. I mean, even after interracial marriage became legal in 1967, after the Levin versus Virginia court case, dating outside your race was still very dangerous for both parties. This is the story of Loving versus Virginia and the landmark civil rights decision that would set an important precedent for marriage rights in America. Richard, who was white, and Mildred, who was black and Native American, spent the early morning hours of July 11th in jail. They were tried and found guilty of violating Virginia's Racial Integrity Act of 1924, a series of laws that made race mixing illegal. The Lovings were then given an ultimatum, spend one year in prison or leave the state of Virginia for 25 years. Frightened and unaware of their legal options, they moved to Washington, D.C., where their marriage was legal. They raised their three children in the nation's capital, financially strapped and isolated from friends and family. Inspired by the burgeoning civil rights movement, Mildred decided to fight back. So in 1963, she wrote a letter to U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy asking for his advice. Kennedy referred the Lovings to the American Civil Liberties Union, who assigned their case to two young lawyers named Bernard Cohen and Philip Hirschkop. Cohen and Hirschkop took their appeal all the way to the Supreme Court, arguing that Virginia's anti-miscegenation laws violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, which guaranteed African-Americans citizenship and all its privileges. The broad and sweeping language of the amendment, they argued, made no mention of interracial marriage and thus guaranteed equal protection of a human being's right to marry. Yes, after this case, it was abnormal for a white woman to be with a black man, but later that changed with time. But let's not forget about what they call the one drop rule. The one drop rule stated if you had any, I mean any African ancestry, you were considered black. Until very recently, any person with one drop of black blood was black. In America's beginning, there was race mixing, especially among indentured servants and slaves. In 1676, during Bacon's Rebellion, these blacks and whites fought the white ruling class holding them in bondage and lost. To prevent future rebellions, the ruling class introduced one of the earliest variations of the one drop of black blood rule transforming a class-based society into a race-based society. The purpose of the rule was to, dis to make clear distinctions between black people and white people. Well, I may not ever be on the bottom down there with you because I'll never be a black person, but I can certainly have some sort of prestige or social status psychologically for being white. 
interracial unions were outlawed. Those with a drop of black blood were pushed into the black. This one-drop rule defined slavery and entrenched the laws of segregation until the civil rights movement destroyed those laws. But not the one-drop rule, which reinvented itself into the five primary race boxes used by identity politics in its quest for racial justice. When most of us black or white and so on can trace our roots back to one thing we all have in common, and that's sub-Saharan African. There's one group that loves DNA testing, and that's racists. Apparently, white nationalists are flocking to genetic tests, but some don't like what they find because often the tests reveal African ancestry. Oh. Oh, no. Like, that's oh, no. a bad thing. That's, that has that's got to be tough. Things. You got to be tough, man. I mean, yeah. you feel for these guys. You, you almost feel bad for them. Then you remember that they're horrible people, and you just laugh and laugh and laugh. <laughs> I'll let that sit with you all, though. <laughs> I won't get into all of that. <laughs> Not right now. We'll bring that up at a later shit. We'll bring that up at a later date. I bring this up because my wife grew up with a black father and a white mother. And during those times, that was frowned upon by some. Those were issues her parents dealt with, but those were issues my wife would face, too, from family members to people at school. On one hand, you're not black enough. And on the other hand, you're not white enough. So as a child, how do you mentally deal with that? For her, she took more to the black side, and that's the family members who really accepted her. But that's a whole nother story, too, and we'll get to that. On one hand, you're not black enough, and on the other hand, you're not white enough. So as a child, how do you deal with that mentally? My whole life, up until I was eight years old, I thought that I was white. Looking back, I'm like, how did I think that? Because all my brothers and sisters, they all have blonde hair and blue eyes. <laughs> I obviously don't. I don't consider myself to be half anything unless someone asks what I'm really composed of because I don't see myself as relating sometimes to this and sometimes to that, I'm just me. For my wife, I mean, it was a struggle, but she took more to her black side. So for her, she considers herself a black woman who grew up with a white mother. And you know one thing that I saw Robin G said that was super dope? I'm black as fuck with a white mama. Shout out to Robin G. Make sure y'all go check that out. To parents, we have to take advantage of teaching our kids how to survive in a world where the color of your skin can determine life or death when dealing with law enforcement and sometimes citizens of the community. It's our duty to ensure our children get the best education possible, whether that's a public school, a private school, or even at home, being homeschooled. What would you do if your child was placed in handcuffs for crying at school? Well, this was a reality for a seven-year-old black boy in Missouri, and it isn't rare for black and brown kids across the country. Whether it's getting arrested for talking back or doodling on a desk, in-school policing is harming students by taking them out of school and helping funnel them into prisons. It's called the School to Prison Pipeline. We're talking about a structure of codes and punishments that criminalizes kids as early as preschool and increases their chances of ending up in the criminal justice system. 
99% of New York City school children who were handcuffed in 2016 were black or Latinx. This happens when school resource officers are called into classrooms to discipline students. Sometimes for something as small as violating a dress code or grabbing candy from a teacher's desk. If the offense doesn't lead to an arrest, black and brown students are still subject to harsher punishments than white students. Black students are four times more likely to be suspended than their white peers. Sometimes students are kicked out of school for basically just being black. Like in cases across the country where black girls were suspended for rocking braids or an afro. So where do students go after they've been kicked out of school? Research shows they're three times more likely to end up in the juvenile justice system within a year. This is all part of an endless cycle. Once kids touch the juvenile justice system, they're 67% more likely to end up in jail again before they're 25. So what lessons are schools and police really teaching our kids here? How can kids excel in school if they're always being kicked out of them? It's also our responsibility to teach our kids things that are not in history books. Life for blacks started way before the Pan-Atlantic slave trade where people from those tribes were kings and queens and people like Mansa Musa, the richest man in the world lived. I can go on and on, but I strongly encourage everyone to do their own homework and uncover a wealth of knowledge. They acclaimed Nigerian photographer George Asodi wants you to know that his country is rich with varied cultures and traditions that span many centuries. It's not only, as the news might suggest, about Boko Haram, Ebola, and oil. Nigeria, West Africa's largest country, has hundreds of tribes, each with its own culture, language, and royalty. Nigeria is a country with more, with more than 300 different ethnic groups, and each group has its own monarch. Most people have no idea that these kingdoms exist and, you know, that they go back for so many centuries. Mansa Musa was the king of the West African Empire, Mali, from 1312 to 1337, and he was also quite possibly the richest person in history. Under his leadership, Mali became one of the largest empires in the world, and the ancient city of Timbuktu became a center of trade and learning. Education flourished as he built schools throughout the empire and libraries collecting books from all over the region. It was because of Musa that the world beyond Africa was introduced to Mali. Musa was a Muslim and responsible for building many beautiful mosques. It was, in fact, his faith that ultimately had a lasting impact on Mali's relationship with the rest of the world. As I transition to education to what we can do economically, I think a great example of both of these would be the Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre. This is U.S. history that isn't taught or talked about in our history class. See, Black Wall Street or Tulsa, Oklahoma is also what we can consider power economics. What the people in the Greenwood District of Tulsa, Oklahoma did was amazing and was a model it was followed in other black cities throughout America. The most well-known was a black district in Tulsa, Oklahoma, known by its residents as Greenwood. If we were to go back in time to 1920 and walk up and down Greenwood Avenue, one thing that would probably strike us is the absolute variety of businesses. 
The numbers are astonishing. 30 restaurants, 45 groceries and meat markets. There were dry goods stores, milliners, a photography studio, dental offices. Greenwood is no longer called Greenwood. It's now known as Black Wall Street. But has since become a thing of the past. For those that don't know, Black Wall Street was one of the most prosperous African-American communities in the United States. Greenwood had its own school system, post office, a savings and loan bank, a hospital, and a bus and taxi service. Let me kick a little more game. The dollar in that community circulated the Greenwood District 36 to 100 times and remained in Greenwood for almost a year before leaving. Dollar would stay in that community sometimes over three, five years before it ever went outside of the community. Do you all know how powerful that is when you learn the power of economics and how to spend money with your people? That's major. Next came the massacre. The massacre was began on May 31st, 1921 and left hundreds of black residents dead. On May 30th, 1921, the mob came to Greenwood. This white woman is in an elevator and this black teenager allegedly whistles at her or talks to her. He is taken to jail. A mob gathers of whites and blacks and blacks in Tulsa are armed. They take their Second Amendment rights seriously and they come with guns. And this is a threat. Someone fires into the crowd and the riot is born. This was not about the whistling boy in the elevator. This was about Blacks becoming too economically powerful and showing that wealth in a way that anyone would by creating buildings and constructing churches and having property. There was a, a whistle that blew, and then the mass invasion and the destruction of Greenwood began. When the smoke cleared in the early morning of June 1st, 1921, Black Wall Street lay in ruins. This will cripple the Greenwood District and would also end what we call Black Wall Street and the home of Tulsa, Oklahoma. There was something that was so, so major. I advise you all that if you get more time and you get another opportunity, go back, read about Black Wall Street, Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the Greenwood District. While you at it, Look up the other prosperous cities and black towns in America that also did the same thing and followed that same motto. The most important thing I want to take away from these cities, towns, or districts is how they practice economics and spent their money within their community, which in turn gave everyone an opportunity to thrive. That's something I think we need to get back to in 2020. Is this something we can get back to? Can the Willie Lynch theory be broken? After all, Willie Lynch presented a model on how to keep a people enslaved for over 365 years. You know what your problems are. I do not have to elaborate. I'm not here to enumerate your problems. I'm here to introduce you to a method of solving them. In my bag here, I have foolproof method for controlling your black slaves. I guarantee every one of you that if installed correctly, it will control the slaves for at least 400 years. 
My method is simple. Any member of your family or your overseer can use it. I have outlined a number of differences among slaves and I take these differences and I make them bigger. I use fear, distrust, and envy for control purposes. These methods have worked on my modest plantation in the West Indies and it will work throughout the South. Take this simple little list of differences and think about them. In my opinion, that way you're thinking is dead. And like Lil Baby said in his new song, The Bigger Picture, we gotta start somewhere. We might as well go ahead and start here. We done had a hell of a year. Yeah, y'all know 2020 been a hell of a year. Like I said, we went from social distancing to social injustice. But anyways, one thing about it, we also have to hold these businesses accountable. Open your doors during the hours you advertise. Provide good customer service when people are in your stores. And keep your inventory stopped. Those are just a few things but if you want people to frequent your establishment, put your best foot forward and do the work. Last but not least, let's not forget the main thing that has driven people to want to protest, maybe take a stand, register to vote. Man, and like myself, use their voice to voice their opinion on the state of America. And that, my friends, is the fatal attacks and injustices that people of color had to go through whenever they had a run-in with an officer. We've watched time and time again cops go commando, and at the end, it was a life taken on camera, and those involved never charged with a crime. Why is that? Really, why is that? How do so many of these encounters end up deadly for some, but others, they're treated with some sort of dignity and respect I don't know and I can't sit here and tell you I have the answers for these questions but one thing I learned about how the police force is the force is supposed to be set up by people you know from your community you know that one guy or that one girl you went to middle school and high school with that you may have some type of rapport with why I say this because those are individuals that can come in and help get a situation under control because they know so-and-so from the block just lost a mother or a father that caught up in the streets. Maybe they're hooked on drugs or maybe came home from a long prison sentence. But see, those individuals, they can help defuse the situation. A little over a year ago, my cousin JJ, he lost his life in the field. And I know for damn sure he ain't finna allow no officer to do any things that we've been accustomed to seeing from police officers. So as we move forward with change, let's change the fuck the police narrative and encourage our kids not to be afraid to join the force to protect the neighborhoods that they grew up in and grew a love for. So that mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, and friends can live comfortably when out and about in the streets. Man... As I close, I just encourage everybody to take that opportunity to do your homework, read, research, find resources, find different things that you can do, continuously push the black race forward so we can get to where we need to be, you know? Oftentimes we sit here and we bicker back and forth with one another, but what does that really get us? What does that really solve? I mean, we all here. We all fighting for the same purpose. Let's put our best foot forward. 
Let's make things happen. Let's continue to do what we got to do. I stand with y'all. You know what I'm saying? All day. Don't ever get that twisted. But at the same time, I want everybody to think on an educated level, on a more serious level. Take the things that's going on out here a lot serious and sit back and deflect. Figure out how we can change the narrative. What are some things that we can do that's different? What are the things that we can do that's new? You know what I'm saying? But at any given time, man, you stand up, you speak how you feel, you say what you mean, you mean what you say. Peace and blessings, man. I love all y'all. I hope everybody do good. I want to see everybody do well. This is another episode of Through My Eyes with One Eye Willie. And this one is a little bit different for me, but I kind of wanted to speak to y'all. I wanted to speak to my peoples and let y'all know, man, I'm a voice for y'all too. So anything y'all want me to do, any things that I can tap in and I can talk on and we can reach out and, and, and do any type of thing for, man, I'm, I'm with it all day.